Hello and welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby and today I'm joined by Hugh Pope. Hugh has a background in journalism and he's now a freelance writer. He formerly served as director of the International Crisis Group, a worldwide organisation which seeks to prevent wars and promote peaceful policies. Hugh has written widely on the culture, history and politics of Turkey, the Middle East and Central Asia. And in recent years, he's also become something of an expert on sortition-based democracy, a scheme in which government representatives or juries or public officials or whatever are selected using a random representative sample of the population rather than by election in our traditional sense or by appointment. So, Hugh, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. I have to admit, I wasn't very familiar with the word sortition, although I guess the concept is at least a bit familiar. Where does the word come from? It comes from the Latin word source, uh, S-O-R-S, which apparently originally means the little pieces of parchment that uh, people would pull out of the lottery uh, pot. And um, it came also to mean uh, fate or with a overtones of God's will. Um, today, sortition just means random selection or lottery, choosing by lot. Yeah, it's certainly not a not very well-known word, and uh, even great newspapers can confuse it with sortation, which means sorting into groups of things, by the way. But I, I think these days it's coming to mean a little bit more than random selection because it's, it's coming to mean a group of things, uh, like Choosing ordinary citizens through random selection, having them deliberate and asking them to reach a determination on things. Now, that group of things, selection, deliberation and uh, decision making or recommending is coming to be called sortition by some people in this niche group of people who are interested in it. Um, that is not a widely accepted thing. You can also call it democracy by lot. You can call it lotocracy. And it also overlaps with other fields like deliberative democracy or participatory democracy. But anyway, it's an evolving field, lots of experimentation going on. Very exciting to be in, actually. Okay, great. So tell me about some of these exciting experiments. I'm not familiar with any countries being run this way, at least at the moment. That's right. Well, the only real full model we have is Athens, ancient Athens. And there it was total sortition uh, all the way, legislature, executive, judiciary, all was done by people chosen by lot or turning up on the morning to be chosen by lot um, from a group of people who had been 6,000 people who were chosen for the year. Um, Athens, of course, just one of a 1,000 uh, Greek city-states of whom not at all all were run by this democratic system. Um, there were tyrannies and monarchies and so forth. Um, but uh, there were many other examples. Uh, everyone did it slightly differently. When you get into it, it's surprising how often it's been used elsewhere. For instance, in Rome, it was used uh, to distribute functions much more, Rome obviously being a republic and then an empire. Um, but they did use it for distributive functions. In China, it was used for many centuries to distribute posts to mandarins who'd passed a certain exam, and then they would use choose by lot for where they would go in order to try and make sure that people would not go to their hometown and benefit their families and so forth. And there's more and more studies of medieval Europe are finding that many cities would use it, many Swiss cantons as well, extensively used it to, again, distribute things. So this is, you're not taking ordinary citizens and putting them in groups of people in power. You're 
from a group of selected citizens who qualify, you're distributing posts. And perhaps the, the, the best example of that is Venice, where the, the Doge was selected by several thousand people. So quite a large group of people, but of course, basically aristocrats, citizens of Venice. Um, there, there was again a mixture of elections and lottery over a week, a very elaborate ceremony. But it produced a Doge who was non-factional and likely to do a good job. And as a result, Venice was a beacon of liberty for in the Dark Ages, basically, for several hundred years. It ran very well. Um, and, you know, it, it never completely disappeared. 19th century France had random selection elements in its parliamentary committee choosing deliberately in order to try and make sure that the committees were a bit more broad-based than the usual bourgeois elite. And in the French armed forces, for instance, also used sortition as a way of doing its pay and conditions uh, things. And that was in order so that people who would join that committee would not feel that they were part of the hierarchy. So to break the hierarchy, they, they used it for, for many decades actually, to this day. And of course, in the Anglo-Saxon world, we've used sortition very successfully for juries. That that's a thousand years old, it, constantly changing. Uh, it's not it's not a static thing. And then, of course, we come to the modern era. Since the 1970s, has been a whole new um, wave of interest, and it's gone in several directions. Yeah. But then this makes me wonder, if it has never gone completely out of fashion, as you say, then why is this system not more widely used now? Why don't we see some countries using sortition rather than elections to choose their legislature, for instance? Funnily enough, it, it wasn't uncontested even in the ancient world. I and mean, Plato was dead against it. Yeah. And Plato, Plato was pretty much against democracy in general. Yes, 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 very much so. And, uh, but joking, joking aside, I think the reason is um, the elite rule is very tenacious. Privileged people are very good at defending their privileges. And um, what we call the Dark Ages were, were dark because there was a church-dominated regime, which very much liked the authoritarian flavor of, uh, of things. And they, of course, believed that God should decide. And, of course, uh, who, who decides what God decided was obviously them. Um, and that continued until the rediscovery of Latin and then Greek texts in the Renaissance and Reformation and Renaissance. Um, until the 18th century, classical scholars did know always that democracy was random selection. They did know that. And so if you read Montesquieu or Rousseau, I mean, they, they, they refer to it in these terms. But there is a break in the 18th century where it seems that for several reasons, the world decided that sortition was the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things was enlightened, rational, and uh, we would choose this representative elite that would be the experts and they would know what to do. And of course, there was also, when it started, it was a very narrow voter base. You know, a few percent of the population could actually vote for these parliaments that we had then. Um, and so reformers went for universal suffrage. You know, if only we could have everybody voting. Uh, and then that process is basically still ongoing. I mean, I, I think we passed the peak of uh, what we call democratic election-based countries in sort of 15 years ago. Um, and now it's receding. But uh, you know, even in 1945, it was a very small number of countries that worked this way. So obviously, if you were a reformer seeking a perfect world, it did seem possible that uh, a fully law-based, um, just uh, and fair electoral system was a, was a good goal. That was the main reason. I think another reason that uh, in my father's book, which uh, I, we published in March, that he thinks is a very important reason is that the ancient Greeks had no philosophy of sortition or why random 
selection was good at doing it. They just said, well, obviously, someone like Aristotle says, the more diverse pool of people you take your ideas from, the better the idea. Um, and they just thought it was self-evident, but they didn't have sampling theory or the science of probability. Despite the fact that people have been playing games of chance since eternity, um, no one actually came up with a theoretical probabilities until even the 16th, 17th century. And even then it wasn't applied to statistics or samples. And opinion polls, which the modern opinion poll, which is really showed that sampling could work, only started in the 1930s. And it's that sampling that gives legitimacy to a randomly selected group of people being at all representative on a theoretical basis of, of, of the community. Yeah, very good. I suppose a few thoughts come to mind about the, the pros and cons of this kind of system. And I think for, for the two of us, to people who've come from a country with an English-style legal system, we can't really deny that this random selection idea has some merit because it has, in fact, been used, as you said, for like a thousand years in our own country to choose juries for criminal trials. And other countries do that too. Um, but one thing that strikes me as interesting about that is that... Um, when you have sortition as a way to choose people who make decisions, one thing you lose, or one disadvantage, is that anyone who isn't chosen doesn't get a say at all. And I think for juries in a courtroom, that might be okay, because the job of the jury is not to make some kind of general policy decision in the interest of everyone or the majority or whatever. Um, their job is to like examine and determine the truth as best they can of a particular factual question. You know, is this person innocent or guilty? But policymaking is different. And in an election, when I cast my vote for a government or a parliament or whatever, for all the well-documented weaknesses of that system, at least in some minimal way, I do get to express my view. Everyone does, right? And add it to the debate. And whether that view is successful in the end is a different question. It depends how many other people vote the same way as me. But, you know, I still vote. It seems like I get to do something more active and more, in a way, satisfying for me than just sitting in my front room waiting for my name to be drawn from the urn so I can help decide? Well, two points. You only get asked once every few years, so it's pretty, pretty minor. Um, you do not choose who you're voting for, a political party does, and the political party is only 3% of the population, and the leadership of that political party is probably 3% of the political party. I mean, <laughs> you have a very narrow window mathematically on choice, and, and whether that person is actually going to do what individually you have voted for him because you thought he was very intelligent, he had the right view on climate change or whatever, his choice of where he votes in the parliament is very unlikely to be what he personally thinks. It's much more likely to be what his party tells him to do. So there's that side of it. Um, I think that the, the thing is, if you only vote once every few years, that's not a very fulfilling experience. I mean, we all, we've all taken it as part of a ritual. If you were in a sortition-based system where Ideally, it would be mandatory that you ser you served your civic duty in a citizen's jury, a citizen's assembly, a panel. It seems likely that you would probably spend a week a year dealing with some subject that you didn't know about before, but you were asked to be the, the head in the room uh, deciding it. So in a sense, compared to the one vote for your local mayor and one vote for your national government every few years, you would have a real participatory experience, which would make you feel much more engaged. And the experience of citizens' assemblies in the latest wave since the 1970s has shown that people who are selected and go and do it are 
very switched on by it and they become much more active in all kinds of way and they, they feel very fulfilled and so, for, for people that I've seen in, in, in these citizen assemblies, many of them say it's a life-changing experience um, at a personal level. Yeah, I, I mean, I can quite believe it. It must be very empowering and exciting to be put in that position and I can imagine people very often do take it seriously, learn about the topic, think things through, do their best to come to the right decision. I get that. And I don't want to kind of over-labor this because this was just one thought that crossed my mind. But my question wasn't about those people who take part. It was about the people who, who aren't there in the room, who aren't selected. I mean, in our current system, it might indeed not be very fulfilling to, you know, stomp grumpily to the polling station, cast your vote between the eight candidates you don't really know, then stomp grumpily home again. But at least you get to do it. And if you then spend three or four or five years getting more frustrated with the outcome of your vote, well, at least you can then go and discharge that frustration again at the end of the political term. So you can vote against the incumbents if you want to. But do you cast your vote against them? I mean, for instance, in the, in the midterms in the United States last year, you know, if you include the rat catcher categories, you know, everybody that you go and to vote for in those huge machines, apparently more than 90% of, of incumbents were re-elected. There is a very big bias to the incumbent. Um, and... And then turnout, you know, again, in the midterms, less than half of the population turning up. Do we believe that the full will of the people is being represented by the system? Uh, I, th I think all the polls are showing that people have lost faith in it. Um, uh, I could cite it to you boringly, but, uh, you know, I think we're, we're all conscious of it. And certainly politicians are conscious of it. Because as we saw, we've seen in France, as we've seen here in Belgium, the Francophone Parliament in Brussels taking action to try and bring citizens, randomly selected citizens, into the process to try and re-engage them because they can see that the gap is opening so wide that their, that, that their livelihoods are threatened. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to debate the pros and cons of this system for longer because it seems like it does have a lot to recommend it, actually. Um, but let's move on to talk a little bit about policymaking and the relevance of expertise in policymaking. So my first question here is, when you have this kind of sortition-based system in place, are there noticeable differences in the policy outcomes that tend to emerge from it? Because we've talked about the differences in the processes of making those policies, but how about the way they turn out at the end? Well, it's still very early days to talk about outcomes, but I can try and give you some examples. Um, Remember that, first of all, because this is new, most of these uh, assemblies only have the power to recommend. They're not decision-making. It's, um, it, it's, uh, it's an issue. Uh, I've seen citizens' assemblies scratching their heads, you know, why am I here? Because it seems like what you know, I'm going to spend a month thinking about this and no one's going to do anything. So uh, I'm not sure how sustainable it is to have recommendation only assemblies but for the time being it's exciting people get involved and uh, governments are increasingly taking notice um, uh, and one of the reasons is that, that they take notice in terms of outcomes from the assembly itself is that because it's consensus based rather than majoritarian and because very often in the final report of a citizen's assembly they, there is an effort to take the minority opinion into account and not just cast by the roadside, the policy mix that is suggested is often much stronger and longer lived. And for instance, there's another way of looking at it after the end of a citizens' assembly, for instance, the, the French Climate Citizens' Assembly in 2019-2020, um, uh, 
they had they came up with 149 pretty strong recommendations um and uh despite the fact that president macron had said that he would um apply these recommendations sans filtre without a filter um for various reasons including the fact that parliamentarians suddenly said hang on we're, we're the lawmakers here um we have a say too only 10% of them were actually put on the on on the law books and everyone saw that as a as a big failure in fact it's cited as a failure but as time goes by it's beginning to become clear that the discussions that were had at that climate assembly got into the policy thinking and um you can see it you can see uh that assumptions have changed as a result of seeing what ordinary people once really informed about the situation really th thought about things like insulating houses and so forth you know, very strong support for insulating houses and if you try and sell a house in France today you will discover that uh, unless it's properly insulated you're in for a shock um and that's the sort of thing that has got strengthened by all these this very public discussion uh, in the countries that are experimenting with it and there are several countries that are going quite a long way Germany France Belgium Holland uh, even the United Kingdom is, is, is doing quite a bit. The mandates are getting stronger. For instance, uh, I attended the France's Citizens Assembly on the end of life, uh, over four months from December to April. And that was fascinating in comparing it to what had happened to the first Citizens Assembly on climate was that there was a procession of politicians who came to address the citizens and the prime minister, the president of the National Assembly, the minister of democratic renewal, and the president himself at the end, all gave the, uh, the, their backing to what they were doing and said, look, if we don't do what you say, we will come back to you. We will reconvene you and explain why. So it is on the up and up. Yes. And, uh, you know, we're, we're only at the beginning these days since the 1970s of a, of a new wave of interest. And, uh, who knows where it will go because, the experimentation that's going on with sortition, I mean, I don't think there's one solution to it. And I think that many people in sortition believe in a mix of elections and sortition, as it was in the Middle Ages in, in many city-states. Um, it's probably where the needle will end up. I mean, my father's book, he's an ancient Athenian. He wants to go all the way. He wants the fully sortition-based system. But that is obviously, even he says, look, it's taken 700 years for parliamentary democracy to achieve, to, to reach its apogee, you know, how many hundred years it took to, for parliament to be the center of decision-making and then how many hundred years for everybody to be able to vote for their, their parliamentarians and so forth. But, you know, it, it could take 100, 200 years more to to get to a system where everyone accepts because everyone has to accept that this is a legitimate way of reaching decisions before you can move to that system you can't just sort of you can't just tell people that oh, that's the new way we're going to do it and uh, uh if you don't like it stuff it it's not going to work um you have to it has to evolve yeah so as we've been talking i've been thinking a little bit about the connections if there are any and i hope there are between sortition-based decision-making and evidence-informed decision-making. And, and so the implications we might see for science advice if we were to adopt this alternate system. Um, so, so here as a first stab, just to kind of set us going in that part of the conversation, I suppose you can imagine two possible opposite implications. One might be that the role of science and experts might be somewhat diminished. You know, I don't know, perhaps a 
randomly selected citizen panel might be less inclined, less interested to draw on scientific expertise for whatever reason. I'm not sure, but perhaps you have some comment to make. And then on the other side, there might also be a concern that the role of experts, the power held by experts, might become rather more exaggerated than than now. So here I'm thinking of something like the the issue in courtrooms where you have a an, an experienced jury that can be quite easily bamboozled and led by an apparently uh, authoritative expert witness. More than a judge might be, right? It takes some experience and some skills, actually, to learn the best ways to make use of scientific input. And I think, like judges, professional politicians and policymakers, at least some of them, now learn those skills. And I'm not sure the extent to which that would be possible in a sortition-based system. Um, so you might end up with decision makers being too skewed towards expert advice, too reliant on it. Anyway, those are my speculations, but perhaps I should ask, first of all, before we even get into that, the more basic question, <laughs> do you think there is still a role at all for expert advice in a sortition-based system? Absolutely. I mean, it's just a, it's just a method of decision-making. But in terms of, uh, of basing policy on science, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I think your podcast already spoke to Zeynep Pamuk uh, last, a couple of years ago, right? Yes. Um, yes wonderful proposal for science juries. Um, is this is having an adversarial courtroom-like thing that she suggests, is that the right way? Or should you have a more collaborative citizens' assembly style thing, I think you would have to experiment to find out. Um, all I can say is that having observed these citizens' assemblies, I think that if we're talking about the input of scientists into a process, it's, it's a wonderful platform uh, because, for a start, the scientist is no longer addressing their peers and they're not addressing the policymaker. They're addressing ordinary people. And there is no feeling like addressing a group of randomly selected people because they are just representing themselves. There's no way of getting... Past that, the fact that they are, have been, it's enormously empowering for the individuals involved, but it also changes the experts' attitude because they, they, they do, I see them very respectful towards this group of people because they are clearly paying a lot of attention. Uh, there are very intelligent questions being asked and also the expert is obliged to speak very clearly and not in jargonese and with a view to what differences would make for the community. So you're already in the presentation. It's, it's very different. And, uh, I know this is going a bit far, but I felt that some scientists felt really refreshed by the experience watching them. And you've got to remember that in a citizens assembly format, I don't know quite how Zeynep Pamuk would have uh, chosen her experts, but there is the right of the citizen assembly to call new experts if they, if they, if they want to go further. And in the case of the latest French one, I was really struck by, um, how seriously the ordinary citizens took the scientific side of the, the questions. Indeed, sometimes the organizers had to say, listen, you have not done research. Like we've all got PhDs, but remember there is, there is a moment where you have to say enough. You've got enough. Um, <laughs> They started going down research rabbit holes, and that brings us to another side of uh, citizens' assemblies, which makes them unlike juries, is that they are organized and they are facilitated. And the facilitation is absolutely essential to keep make sure that shy people speak, to make sure that there's a red line that goes through the whole assembly, that people remember who what was said, that, and that it be neutral, uh, and so forth. Yeah, so I, I think that the 
for instance, on the end of life, there were 60 experts who briefed them. And uh, the formats in which they briefed them were also very interesting. So sometimes you had six people giving their expert advice from the same angle, basically. So uh, there was an extraordinary moment where the six major religions were on the stage. And um, they all said the same thing, which was, which was weird. They all basically were against uh, assisted dying. And the next day, you had six experts from the philosophical side, two philosophers, human rights advocates, six people saying the same thing, yes to assisted dying. Now, funnily enough, that wasn't very helpful. What the ordinary citizens liked in the experts is when we had, they had two people who were both activists and had become very expert in defending the idea of assisted dying and criticizing the idea of assisted dying and watching them have that sort of adversarial, but definitely for the audience to hear the, the points being debated from both perspectives. That was when you really could see them, everyone's brain switching on and everyone trying to reach their own position. And afterwards, everyone rushing up to the stage to speak to them a bit more to get answers to their questions. And so the other thing about experts, which I took away from me, is that even among the six uh, divines and the six um, philosophers, none of them agreed with each other on the smaller stuff. And so it became very clear that there was no one answer to this problem that was being set. And I, again, I'm going back to my father's book, this is something that he always says, you know, an expert is an expert because they've learned how to do something in a repetitive way. And uh, they, they are able to reproduce the same action over and over again, very well, flying a plane from point A to point B and not crashing it. You know. um, the moment where you have a new situation, you know, a massive pandemic sweeping the country, there is no right answer. You have to have everyone chipping in and then someone finding a politically acceptable way forward. And for that, I think the citizens' assemblies are really good. And it's, you know, it's not like it takes an awfully long time. Citizens' assemblies can work quite quickly. Okay, so this is very interesting. Um because there are different kinds of policy challenges and assisted dying is one example. Um, you know, it has this specific character where I, well, I dare say there are many scientific questions in that policy area where we need expert input. But at the end of the day, the central complexity of it, I would say, is not scientific. It's not empirical. It's really fundamentally moral, right? It's a question of value judgments. And I'm sure scientific evidence has something to contribute in providing information to inform those value judgments you know a researcher could give their opinion on the treatability of different conditions or even something like the possible moral status of different levels of brain function or what have you but at the end of the day you can still have two people or two communities maybe more relevantly who agree on all the same facts and still fundamentally disagree on the policy question should we allow assisted dying or not so, so fine. And then that seems to me that that makes a very good example of a question where a panel of citizens might be a good way to come to a decision. And I think the role of experts in that process is clear and, and well contained, right? Kind of well circumscribed. But then let's talk about a very different policy issue, which is also challenging and which you also mentioned, climate change. So the reason this kind of problem is challenging, or one big reason, is not because of this kind of single big evidence-proof values clash, but because the, the topic is enormously complex and the way its effects and the responses to it reach into our society in every part and involve every 
discipline of scientific expertise and so on is really quite striking. And here I think the role of experts and the distinction between experts and, I guess, technocrats and politicians is much more complex and much more messy. Uh, just because the whole topic and the whole policy landscape is, is much more complex and messy as well. Uh, I'm not sure where I was going with that originally, but but maybe here's one question then. This seems like an issue where we might value actually experienced professional policymakers and politicians who can become familiar with the topic over a long period. They can learn the ins and outs of it. They can get to know the scientists and they can kind of develop some of the special skills that they need to get on in this space, you know, political nous and negotiating skills and understanding how to get best use out of experts and what experts can and can't do, you know, the limits of science and all these things, which which science for policy researchers tell us are important. And I worry a bit that a conversation between science advisors and a randomly selected panel of civilians, for want of a better word, is going to perform much less well on these kinds of skills that our policymakers need if we want to solve the big problems. Yeah, but then they would get stuck in a rut because that's that you, you you know as we know that crisis situations require a new policy. Once you are the person who's decided the policy, you're quite unlikely to change your mind. Research on experts shows that the educated elite are the people least likely to change their mind on things. Yeah, um, <laughs> and uh, so you're facing a new situation. Where, you, as you yourself said, there's a lot of uncertainty, and you know, no scientist can answer the question of uncertainty. That uncertainty um, uh, is a series of, uh, you know, assumptions or propositions, which require action. And ordinary people are very good at judging. First of all, who's having them on? If someone's trying to manipulate them, the people people may not understand the technical details of uh, of layers of the atmosphere, but they, they will understand if someone's trying to fluster them with too much jargon or is representing a fossil fuel company or something like that. They're, they are good judges of other people. Um, of course, they can also be swept away by other people. That That's also possible. Um, so you do need... Uh, as I said, facilitation, you do need, uh, the, the facts need to be present. Um, and, uh, that the facts are usually provided by the organizers, but also by others in the citizens assembly. I think that there's, um, no need for experts to be the ones who actually take the decision. I mean, it's a, it's a bit like when you, you, you are trying to decide whether you should cross the river by building a ferry station, a bridge, uh, or, or a roundabout road. To make the decision, you wouldn't ask the bridge builder. You would ask another group of people to decide what what method we're going to use to cross this river. And then once they decided, oh, okay, between these options, the bridge is best, then you would find out what kind of bridge um, where you would need an expert. Um, but uh, everyone has their, their personal interests, even in the scientific field. And as we saw in the COVID, COVID thing, even there, people were exploiting a human disaster to sell more stuff to the government and to to rip it off. And it was going on in broad daylight. It's just extraordinary. Okay. Um, so okay. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Well, then let me ask the question the other way around. Um, in a sortition-based system, how can the people who are selected to make these decisions acquire the skills that they need to be able to make them intelligently 
Well, it's it's a fascinating question because when you see the citizens arrive at the beginning of a, of a citizens' assembly, they're very diffident. They've been chosen. They feel very proud of being chosen, but they know that they know nothing about it. And it seems like a mountain they have to climb. They know no more than anyone else. Many of them take it very seriously, read in with the documentation. And that's the first thing that the organization is very important for. Like in France, when you have a five-star state behind the process, the documentation they provided to the citizens was amazing, truly unbiased in that they gave the positions of everybody when they gave you know the human examples of all sides of the end-of-life process that could emotionally affect your decision. So you could get a taste of everything. They gave lessons to the citizens on deliberation. They gave them support, how to use computers, how to use your tablets, how to vote. How to, it was No one was left behind in this extraordinary. 185 people were chosen. They thought that 30 of them would drop out over the four months. Only one of them did, and that was because she had to go to America for a job or something. You know? But otherwise, all 184 stayed on. Even people who strongly rejected the Citizens' Assembly stayed with it somehow because there was a, an esprit de corps that developed. And that esprit de corps was something – there was another thing that you needed to reach the, a decision was to trust the other people so that you could come together on the thing. Because obviously, to, to reach a decision on something really difficult – People have to be ready to change their minds a, a bit, not maybe not completely. For instance, I certainly felt my mind changed when I was listening to all this. Because I thought, yeah, of course you should allow people to kill themselves if they want to. But by the end of it, you realize that it wasn't that easy because the reasons that people kill themselves are sometimes because they think that they're a burden on their family, that they're using up all the family budget, that uh, no one no one loves me. And these these are things that are external to the person that, that, that can be changed. And uh, so one, le one learned a lot. Ordinary citizens were really able to rise to the occasion and uh, support each other and listen to each other. And it's extraordinary how how to see the living proof that many minds make light work or something. I mean, it, they they really came together. And for certain tasks, like writing the main statement, they had a big report, which was very lengthily discussed, three, 400 propositions, and only the propositions that got more than 66% of the vote would be taken on. Then it was written up by the back staff and then put back to the assembly. But then they had to write a kind of not quite a press release, but a, a, an address to the people and being France or something. And they, they, they needed a, a proper declaration of what it was all about. And there they, they, they had an election without candidate for six, eight, nine people to draft this document. And the way it worked was extraordinary. How sophisticated people were in their response. And even people who were for or against would vote for the best person from the other camp to be in the drafting committee so that everyone would be included. It's something that I doubt can be taught, but it can be, it can be fostered. This, 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 this spirit of collaboration in the public interest. And it was a truly wonderful thing to watch. Inspiring. Yeah, I can well imagine. Um, speaking of personal inspiration, you've mentioned a couple of times your dad and your dad's book, and it occurred to me that perhaps we weren't completely clear <laughs> with the audience at the beginning, which I should have asked you earlier on. How did you personally get interested in this topic? Well, I was brought up with it, really. My dad sitting at the end of the dining room table lecturing us. I mean, he was a <laughs> sorticianist from the get-go. And, you know, naturally, as a child, one, one completely disregards anything one parents say. And uh, when he wrote... Uh, a book, uh, his umpteenth book about the classical world as we saw it at the time, 
defending the idea of sortition and reintroducing it to the modern world in the 1980s. I, I remember reading chapters of it, including there's a chapter on utopia and uh, yeah, Dad, this is really utopian. No one is ever going to do this. And uh, um, we would tease him about it. And unfortunately, his publishers also felt the same. It was way out of uh, of court for them that, uh, that, that uh, no one was talking about it in public. Uh, there are very, very few publications about it in the mid-20th century. And uh, so he couldn't get it published. And you know, towards the end of his, you know, when he retired and everything, I used to bully him a bit saying, Dad, where's the book? Uh, why don't you put it out? You know, you can, you can print it. It's a private publication. So easy now. But it was lost. He, the computer file was completely corrupted. We couldn't find it anywhere. And, uh, and it wasn't until, um, my mother was going through his library after his death in 2019 that she found the typescript. Uh, and by that time, because I'd been brought up by him, I'd started reading the sort of the saints of the, of the, of the firmament, uh, the David van Raybrook's Against Elections and, uh, other, other great texts about sortition. And, you know, I'd been really switched on to it. But I could also see when I read my dad's book with open eyes that he still had very original things to say, because it's more about the philosophy of sortition and randomness and, uh, uh, and, and why it would work rather than uh, the, the sort of political science ins and outs of, of the question. So I started editing it. And um, amazingly, I sent off drafts to experts uh, in the field, and they really encouraged me. And one of them, bless her, uh, <clears throat> Helen Landemore of Yale University, said, look, if you publish this, I'll write the preface for you. And thanks to that, it was actually taken 30 years after he wrote it. It was accepted by a really good publisher. And um, it, uh, it, I don't know, I find what what inspires me about it is that every time I talk about it with people, especially young people, they find hope in it. Whereas, you know, this idea that we can just find another politician to fix things, I think, has really run its course as a as a fix to the problem. And so people people are really interested. And uh, that's what keeps fueling my interest anyway. Yeah, well, that interest is clear and the enthusiasm is inspiring. And I'm not at all surprised that people you talk to about this are infected with the same enthusiasm. This has been a very interesting topic for me personally. And I hope for our listeners, partly because it is quite different from what we normally talk about. But I think it still fits squarely into the science of policy mould. So I will, of course, put a link to your father's book in the show notes. But for those who never read the show notes, including me, I will also say here that the book you're looking for is written by Morris Pope, edited by Hugh Pope, and it's called The Keys to Democracy, Sortition as a New Model for Citizen Power. And then my final words, of course, are to you, Hugh Pope. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you very much for having me on. The Science for Policy podcast is created by Sapea. It's produced by me, Toby Wardman, with additional research and support from Agnieszka Pietruchuk. Sapea is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learned societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism, and as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests, and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. 
This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Suschenko. And this last bit is particularly good. <laughs>